Our Old Testament reading for today is Isaiah 52.13 through 53.5. Maybe uh, you've noticed we've been reading out of Isaiah a lot uh, lately. Uh, there's a reason for that. It corresponds to what we are considering in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, many of these passages uh, speak of the coming Messiah, and here in Luke we find Jesus as the fulfillment to these prophecies of old. So Isaiah 52.13 is the Old Testament reading. We will read Luke 9.37-45. That will be our sermon text. We'll read that text in just a moment. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Isaiah 52.13 Behold, my servant shall act wisely. This reference to God's servant is a reference to the Messiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." Let us go now to Luke 9. We will read verses 37 through 45, our sermon text, Luke 9, 37. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. When he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is now the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of the word of God this morning. 
As I was preparing this sermon, I was tempted for a brief moment to go much further and to take as my text Luke 9.37 through 62. The reason this possibility came to my mind was that I recognized a common theme that runs through each one of these stories that are told in this section of Luke's Gospel. The theme, it seems to me, has to do with the great difficulty that people had in accepting the news that Jesus would enter into glory through suffering and that His followers were called to do the same. Christ clearly revealed to His disciples that He would enter into glory through suffering back in Luke 9.21, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There He also revealed that His disciples would enter into glory with Him through suffering, saying, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. But we learned that His words fell on deaf ears. People were having a very difficult time coming to grasp with this idea that Jesus the Messiah would enter into eternal glory through suffering. That His disciples could not comprehend. This is clearly stated in the passage that is open before us today. And in the passages that follow, it becomes very clear that the disciples of Jesus were hungry for power and glory. They were eager to have it immediately. They could see and accept the thought of Christ on His throne, but they could not see or accept the thought of Christ on His cross. And we know that many throughout the history of the world have erred in the same way. Many are willing to identify with Christ in His glory, but they will not identify with the Christ of the cross. And yet we know To follow Christ and to enter into His glory, we must first identify with Him in His suffering. Here again His words, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. So this is the theme uh, that I see in this entire section of Luke's Gospel. The theme is about Christ entering into glory through suffering and the great difficulty that people were having in accepting this news. Uh, That is the central theme of this text and the passages that follow. I've decided to focus our attention on verses 37 through 45 so that we might appreciate some of the wonderful details in this text and not gloss over them. In verse 37 of Luke 9, we read, On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. So then, we must remember that Jesus was glorified by God on the mountain, But it was not yet time for Him to enter into His eternal glory. When Christ was transfigured on the mountain, it was a preview of what was to come. The Son of Man would eventually enter into glory, but first He would have to suffer. First He would serve. First He would lay down His life as a sacrifice for many. And so Jesus did not remain on the mountain in the estate of glory, but like Moses before Him, He came down from the mountain to minister to the people. I think there is a point of application to be made here. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must have the same attitude and approach. Followers of Christ must be humble. They must not stand aloof. 
They must not look down upon others, but they, like their master, must walk humbly in the world with the disposition of a servant. Paul the Apostle famously commanded this in Philippians 2.5. There he wrote to Christians saying, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Christ went up onto the mountain of transfiguration to be glorified, thereafter speaking of his suffering and death, it was a preview of what was to come. He would suffer and die in Jerusalem, and in this way, He would enter into the estate of eternal glory. And when Christ came down from the mountain to minister to the multitude again, it was a little picture of His entire mission. As the person of the eternal Son of God, He is eternally and unchangeably glorious. But we know that the Son emptied Himself, humbled Himself by assuming a human nature. And in that human nature, He suffered the point of death, even the death on a cross, And so the point of application is this, if our Lord walked in this way, then we should walk in this way too. In verse 38 we encounter a very sad story. He came down from the mountain and behold, a man from the crowd cried out saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out, It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Notice firstly, the love that this father had for his son. This father, we we don't know his name, was greatly troubled concerning the condition of his son. The text tells us that the boy had a spirit or demon And this demon would cause the boy to cry out, convulse, to foam at the mouth. The language used in this text is very strong. We are told that the demon would shatter or crush him and would hardly leave him alone. And so what did this father do for his son? Notice he brought him to the feet of Jesus. And this is the very thing that every father and mother should do with their children. They should bring their children to Jesus. By God's mercy and grace... Few have been afflicted by the evil one in the extreme way that this young person was afflicted. But that does not mean that the evil one is not at work. His methods are manifold. His tactics are varied. The evil one shattered this boy with convulsions and with seizures. This is unusual. But as we consider this story today, we are to remember that the evil one wishes to bind and shatter all. He will often do it in much more subtle ways through false teaching, through the seductiveness of the world, by stirring up the passions of the flesh. And here, parents of children, I'm speaking to you. We must be on guard. We must keep a watch, not only over our own souls, but the souls of our children too. And how are we to protect them, not in our own strength, but by bringing them to Jesus, just as this father did? We are to bring our children to Jesus, first and foremost, in prayer. 
Notice that this man cried out to Jesus from the crowd and said, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And so parents, I am saying to you, and especially fathers, I am pleading with you to carry your children and even your grandchildren to Jesus in prayer. I might ask you, do you cry out to Christ in prayer and plead with Him to have mercy on them, to deliver them from the evil one and to bless them with life in glory? Parents, my exhortation to you is to bring your children to Jesus regularly in prayer. Notice, secondly, the malice and cruelty of the evil one. Satan, through his demons, shattered this young life. This boy, the only son of his father, was crushed in a most extreme and unusual way. Satan's malice and cruelty were made visible and apparent to all in this instance. Matthew and Mark both record this story in their Gospels too. Mark provides us with the most information. He tells us that this boy was also dumb and deaf. He could not speak and he could not hear. In Matthew's account, the father refers to the son as a lunatic. This poor boy was in terrible bondage to the evil one. Truly, this boy was in bondage. He was crushed by the evil one. And I am saying that here we see the malice and cruelty of Satan put on full display. What what is Satan like? What is his character like? What is his work like? What does he do? Well, here we find an image of it in this boy. And we might ask the question, why was this permitted by God? Why was this permitted by God that this young child would be so oppressed by the evil one The first answer we must give is that God knows. There are mysteries that we do not understand, and it would be impious to pretend that we can peer into the secret counsel and wisdom of God to know these mysteries. But there are a few things that we can safely say, and these are things that can be said based upon the revelation found in God's Word. Secondly, it does seem that in this boy we find a picture of what we all deserve given our sin and rebellion against God. As I consider this story, the thought occurs to me, why are we not all like this? Did you think that when you read this story as well? I suppose we could look at this story and say, why did God permit this boy to be in such oppression and bondage to the evil one, to be crushed to such an extreme? Can we not also ask the question, why are we not all like this? Why are we not all oppressed by the evil one in this extreme way? The answer is, by God's grace. By God's common grace, uh, the Lord keeps us from this kind of oppression. Thirdly, this story along with all the other stories regarding demon possession found in the Scriptures reveals that although the evil one is given some freedom to work in this world, God by His common grace restrains him greatly. Again, the question could be asked, why are we not all like this? Why is the enemy not permitted to work in this way always and forever? Again, the answer is the same. It is by God's grace. It is by His common grace. He restrains the evil one. We know that the evil one has been restrained even more so now that Christ has risen from the dead. Fourthly, it is through the experience of this boy and his father that hundreds of thousands have been warned of the cruelty of the evil one. We must know that there are two kingdoms present in the world. And there are two kings... There is the kingdom of darkness with Satan as king, and there is the kingdom of light with Christ as king. 
Here in this story, we see clearly that Christ is the benevolent king, whereas Satan is most cruel. Here in this story, the words of Jesus, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly, are proven, and they are put on display. Did you hear Christ's words? The thief, that is, uh, in this instance, Uh, false shepherds, but motivated by the evil one himself. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Indeed, this principle is put on display in this story that we are considering this morning. And fifthly, we can confidently say that the Lord permitted this suffering so that Christ would be magnified through it. For here Christ demonstrates His power over the evil one. His ability to set captives free and to bring life, light, peace, and wholeness where once there was only brokenness, turmoil, death, and darkness. Here in this instance, Christ puts His power on display. He indeed is able to set captives free. He's able to conquer the evil one. He's able to give His people life and to deliver them from death. The question, why does God allow suffering, suffering in our lives, suffering in the lives of those we love, suffering of the kind we see described even here in our text, is a difficult question to answer. It is good to say, first of all, God knows. It is good to let the mystery remain. But we can also say what the Scriptures say. And the Scriptures do speak to this question. Romans chapter 9 would be a good place for you to start. And it is the principles contained within Romans 9 that I've applied here in the answers that I've given. In verse 41, we find Jesus' response to the Father's request. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And then He spoke, saying, Bring your Son here. One question we should ask is, Who was Jesus speaking to when He said, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Some think that Jesus was upset with the father and the boy and was rebuking him. Excuse me, let me say that again. Some think that Jesus was upset with the father of the boy and was rebuking him for his lack of faith. This interpretation would also say that the reason the disciples of Jesus could not cast out the demon, as reported in verse 40, was because the Father lacked faith. Furthermore, those who interpret the text in this way also tend to criticize the Father for being rude to the disciples and for complaining against Jesus in public. But this interpretation does not seem to square with the data, in my opinion. The Father, in fact, seems humble to me. He cried out to Jesus. He begged Him. Mark tells us in his Gospel that he implored Jesus, saying, Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, That is a famous saying, isn't it? And, And that saying belongs to this father here. Jesus said to him, if, I, if you can, uh, and the, the father did immediately confess that he believed, uh, but he also confessed his weakness. Help my unbelief. Perhaps there is something to the idea that the father was weak in faith and that Jesus wished to work stronger faith in him and to draw out a profession of faith 
as he did. But the point that I am here making is that the rebuke, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you, does not seem to fit with what we know of Jesus' interaction with the Father. Everything about that interaction seems to be gentle and sincere. Others assume that Jesus was rebuking His own disciples for their lack of faith when He said, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And I suppose this is possible, but it seems like a very strange way for Jesus to speak to His disciples, especially in public. The rebuke seems to be for a broader audience. And though the disciples were certainly at times weak in faith, they could not be described as faithless, could they? And though the disciples had many failings, I do not think they could be described as being twisted. And Christ, we know, is patient with His people. He is long-suffering. He is faithful to them. He bears with their weaknesses. He patiently shepherds them and leads them along. I think the words, How long am I to be with you and bear with you, do not seem to fit with Jesus' common disposition towards His disciples. A third interpretation is the one offered by John Calvin, and, and this is the one I take. Calvin, I think, is helped by his harmonization of the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When Calvin went to write commentaries on the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he harmonized them. He put them side by side wherever possible and commented on them all together. I think he was helped by this in this instance. As I said before, Mark's account is the most detailed of the three. And Mark reveals that before Jesus arrived on the scene, His disciples were surrounded by the crowd. Can you picture it? Here is Jesus coming down from the mountain. Perhaps Peter, James, and John are, are close by Him. Maybe they have gone ahead of Him. We don't know for sure. But as He comes down the mountain, He sees His disciples surrounded by this great crowd, this multitude. And Mark tells us that the scribes, who are often mentioned along with the Pharisees as opponents of Jesus, were in the mix. And in Mark 9.14, we are told that these scribes were disputing with the disciples of Jesus. In verse 16 of Mark 9, Christ asks the scribes, What are you arguing about with them? And then Mark tells us the story about the father and the boy. Calvin's interpretation is that Jesus' rebuke was directed towards the faithless and twisted people in the crowd, particularly the scribes, who were likely using this sick boy and his grief-stricken father to put the disciples of Jesus to the test. So can you imagine this scene? Jesus has been healing many. He's been casting out demons, healing the sick. Indeed, He sent His own disciples out to do this very thing not long ago. They went out and they had success. They cast out demons and healed the sick. And now I think the scribes are taking the opportunity to put the disciples of Jesus to the test. Jesus is away. Here are the disciples. And so they bring this terrible situation to them and they say, Do your best. And the disciples are unable to cast out the demon and so they mock them. They call into question Jesus' ability too, I'm sure. I think that is the situation here. And so this rebuke, I do not see it as being directed at the Father, nor do I see it as being directed at the disciples of Jesus, but at the twisted and perverse and unbelieving generation uh, present within uh, the crowd. Uh, indeed, the scribes and the Pharisees could bear, this, could bear the brunt of, of, of this kind of rebuke. Why were the disciples unable to heal the boy? That is another question we should ask. Why were the disciples of Jesus unable to heal the boy? 
The text does not say, did the Father lack faith? Maybe. Were the disciples weak in faith in this moment? Perhaps. A likely explanation is that the whole situation was forced and chaotic at first, given what we know about the scribes and their bantering with Jesus' disciples. Furthermore, I think it is assumed that because Jesus sent the twelve out to cast out demons, to heal and to preach the gospel of the kingdom, as recorded at the beginning of Luke 9, that they possess this power to cast out demons perpetually. I think it is assumed that once that power was given to them, that they would have it always. But I don't know if that's the case. It would be kind of like saying, because Jesus commanded them to feed the 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and fish, they then could do this at will from that day onward. We know that that's not the case. No, they could multiply bread and fish when it was the will of Christ to do this through their hands. And so it is with the matter of exorcism and healing. The apostles of Jesus had the power to exorcise demons and to heal the sick when it was Christ's will to grant them this power. And in this instance, Christ withheld it. Why He withheld it, we do not know. But I think one thing we could say is that He withheld it so that He Himself could show forth the power that He possessed over Satan and the demons in a more pronounced way. Whatever the reason for the inability of Jesus' disciples to heal this boy and to free him from the demonic oppression, I hear Jesus' rebuke being delivered to the scribes and to others in the crowd who were indeed faithless and twisted. They were representatives of an entire generation, and Jesus rebuked them all. Maybe you can see that this story we are considering in Luke does parallel the story found in Exodus 32 about Moses coming down from the mountain of glory where he received the law only to find the people doing what? Worshipping that golden calf. Moses came down from the mountain of glory to a faithless and twisted generation and Christ came down from the mountain of glory to a faithless and twisted generation as well. And so he rebuked them. And then, to defend the honor of his name, and to show forth the power and glory that he possessed, and to perform an act of kindness for this crushed boy, the only son of his grief-stricken father. What did Jesus do except heal the boy? Beginning at the end of verse 41, we hear Jesus say, Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. If the demon-possessed boy the only son of his father, serves as a kind of example or picture of the cruelty of the evil one, then we should say that Jesus' healing of this boy, His freeing him from demonic oppression, His releasing him from crushing physical ailments, and His returning him whole and well to His father, must serve as a kind of picture of His mission to redeem. Do you see how these things are pictured here? What kind of king is Satan? What kind of ruler is he? He's a cruel and malevolent ruler. But what about Jesus? What kind of king is he? What mission is he on? See how benevolent he is. See how kind he is. See that he has come to release us from this bondage and to return us to the Father, to reconcile us to the Father. The eternal Son of God, the Son of glory, descended, as it were, from the mountain of the glory of heaven by taking to Himself a human nature. Without ceasing to be what He always has been, 
He humbled himself and became incarnate. Why? To defeat the evil one. He came to set captives free. He came to make his people whole and well and to give them life, that is to say eternal life. He came to reconcile lost sons and daughters to the Father. And here we have a little picture of that mission. Here Jesus demonstrated to all that he has the power to save. The people understood the significance of this event. Now, I'm not saying that they all understood the full significance of it. Uh, the one I've just described to you a moment ago. We can see that this is the full meaning because we look back upon these events after Christ has accomplished our redemption. But the people did at least know that Jesus was no ordinary man. They knew that He performed these miracles by the power of God. The text says in verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. In verse 44, we learn that the people were marveling at everything that He was doing. So Jesus got their attention. They understood that He was no mere man, that He was doing these things by the power and majesty of God. So Jesus' majesty and glory were put on display in front of Peter, James, and John up on the mountain when He was transfigured before them with Moses and Elijah appearing at His side. And His majesty and glory were also displayed through the miraculous deeds that He performed And these things were not done off in a corner somewhere. They were done so that the crowds can see them. There is one more thing we need to do before moving this sermon towards a conclusion. It's a very important thing. And that is we need to put ourselves in the place of the disciples of Jesus. I just mentioned that we look back upon these events with a kind of 2020 hindsight. We can see clearly that this was a miracle performed by Jesus uh, to function as a little picture of a much greater work that He would soon accomplish. We can see this clearly because we live after the suffering, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. But the disciples of Jesus at this moment in time simply could not comprehend the glorious things that were about to happen. They could not comprehend these things. Was this a glorious and majestic thing that Jesus did for this boy and for his father? Was it a demonstration of the power of God and the ability of Christ to save? Did it prove that Christ had the power to conquer Satan, sin, and death? Yes, it was a demonstration of all of these things. But this work was nothing compared to the work that Christ would soon do. I was trying to think of an illustration And this was the best I could do. If we were to put put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples here, it would be like witnessing a small little rehearsal before a great concert. Have you ever gone to a concert before? Um, Maybe you showed up early enough to witness some of the rehearsing that goes on uh, before a concert. The lead singer comes on the stage to check his microphone. He sings a little. The lead guitarist comes out to test his instrument. He plays a little. The technicians test the lights. And in this way, those who witness the rehearsal get a little taste of what is to come. But this rehearsal pales in comparison with the actual performance when all of these elements are brought together in perfect harmony. I think that is what we see with the ministry of Jesus. He gives His disciples little previews of what's to come. He casts out a demon here. He calms the stormy sea there. 
He ascends the mountain and shows forth His glory for Peter, James, and John to see. He descends from the mountain and He delivers this boy from terrible bondage. These are little glimpses of the glory that will be His in the future. These are little little pictures of the overall mission that He has come to perform. But none of these things can even be compared with the glory uh, that is to come. I think that is how we are to interpret these these miracles that Jesus performed, these displays of His glory and majesty. But I am saying to you that in the moment, the disciples of Jesus and many within the crowd, they simply could not comprehend what was about to happen. Certainly they could not comprehend how Jesus would accomplish the work that the Father gave Him to do. Look at verse 43. After giving a preview of the glory that would be His on the mountain, and after displaying His majesty and glory before the multitudes and the miracle He performed, He spoke to His disciples said, and said, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. I love this verse. I think to fully appreciate it, we need to imagine the scene. And so picture Jesus there amid a huge crowd. The crowd must have been very energetic. The people were stirred up with excitement and wonder over the miracle He performed. And I wonder if you could picture the faces of His disciples. Their eyes must have been bright, full of hope, excitement, and wonder. Their countenances must have been very uplifted. And I think if we were able to get into their heads, we would find images of power and glory. I think we would find images of Christ sitting on His glorious throne, the throne of King David, and they ruling and reigning at His side. If we were able to feel the emotions they were likely feeling, we might feel the emotions of pride, even the emotions of greed and selfish ambition. And it is in the midst of all of this, with the crowds around Him, all of this excitement, all of this hustle and bustle, that Jesus cries out to His disciples and warns them, Let these words sink into your ears, He says. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This being a reference to His future arrest in Jerusalem, His brutal mistreatment, and ultimately His crucifixion. Verse 45 says, But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask Him about this saying. When the text says, but they did not understand this saying, it must mean that they did not have a category for this concept in their minds. The words themselves are not difficult to comprehend. They're very simple. Uh, the Son of Man is about to be handed and given over into the hands of, of men. It, it, it's not a difficult uh, thing to understand. It's the concept that they could not grasp. When the text says it was concealed from them, this is a reference to God. God did not grant them the ability to comprehend the full meaning of Jesus' words. God allowed them to remain in their ignorance regarding the true meaning. Now you might say, well, why? Why would God do this? I think the answer is that they were not ready to bear it. If it was revealed to them at this moment all that Christ would endure, and all that they would endure as His disciples, they would have crumbled under the pressure. And I think this should remind us that we are all works in progress, 
And that God will only give us what we can handle at the moment. He stretches us. He tests us to refine us. But He will not permit His people to be overwhelmed to the point of being overcome with despair. So God kept this from them. And I think the reason is that because they were not yet ready to bear it. If God concealed the meaning of Jesus' words from them, we might also ask the question, then why did Jesus even say the words? (laughs) And the answer here is so that the disciples might look back and remember that Christ said these things before He went to Jerusalem to be betrayed, mocked, beaten, and crucified. In other words, Jesus spoke of His suffering ahead of time so that His disciples might know for certain that Jesus went to Jerusalem willingly, knowing what He would endure, and for this purpose, no one took Jesus' life from Him. He laid it down willingly. The disciples were afraid to ask Jesus the meaning, not because they were afraid of Jesus, as if He would be irritated with them or harsh with them. We know that this is not true of our Master. When His disciples come to Him with genuine questions and concerns, He he receives them and instructs them in a very caring way. They were afraid to ask Jesus what this saying meant because they were afraid of what the answer might be. In other words, they were perfectly content to remain on this path, the path of entering into the glory of Christ's kingdom immediately, without the need for suffering. That's the path that they were on mentally. They had visions of glory and grandeur in their heads, I think. And they were perfectly content to let all of that come. Jesus, in this saying, began to derail that thought, and they did not want to hear it. They didn't want to know what Jesus' words truly meant. And so what did they do? They buried their heads in the sand and continued on their way. Ignorance is bliss, they say. Well, it might be, but only for a short time. You do know, brothers and sisters, the truth always has a way of hitting you square between the eyes at some point. It is not wise to live life in this way, burying your heads in the sand. Instead, we ought to know what God's Word means, what God's Word says, and we ought to live according to this truth. The very next words in this text confirm what I have said about the mentality of the disciples. Look at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. We'll pick up there next Sunday, Lord willing. Let me conclude with this. Did Jesus come to rescue His people, crushed by Satan, sin, and the fear of death, and to reconcile these to the Father? The answer is yes, He did. And did He come to crush Satan under His feet, to overthrow His kingdom of darkness, and to enter into His glorious and eternal kingdom? The answer is yes, He came for this purpose. See Romans 16.20. But do not forget this, brothers and sisters. Christ has redeemed His people, has defeated Satan, sin, sickness, and death, and has entered into glory through suffering. The way to His throne was through the cross. As the prophet Isaiah predicted long before He came, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Thanks be to God for His mercy and grace. Thanks be to Christ for all that He endured for us to reconcile us to the Father. Let's bow for prayer. Father in Heaven, we do thank You for this text that has reminded us of the great work that Jesus Christ the Messiah has accomplished. He has provided for the forgiveness of sins. He has defeated the evil one. In Him there is redemption. In Him there is the hope of life abundant, life everlasting. God, I do pray that we would believe the Word of God, that we would believe the Gospel, and that we would believe in Christ Jesus, His person and His work. If there are any here who do not yet trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that You would draw them. May they cry out to You in prayer, confess their sins, and plead with You for mercy, O God. If there are any here who have not yet come to faith in Christ, I pray that they would profess Jesus as Lord and be baptized. Have mercy, O Lord, upon us. And for those who do have Christ as Lord, I pray that You would strengthen their faith. Lord, be with us. Strengthen our faith. Help us to to know Christ better and to see with more clarity the great work of redemption that He has accomplished. I pray that You would warm our hearts, O God, that You would draw us closer to You through Christ Jesus. I pray that You would lead us in paths of righteousness for Your namesake. It's in the name of Christ that we pray these things and all of God's people say, Amen.